You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Greetings, Northway Church. It's a joy to be with you today as we open God's Word and we hear Him speak. My name is Brady Goodwin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. And today we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 19. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open up to Psalm 19. We'll be looking at that text together today. Um, This is a very well-known Psalm for some of us, uh, and it's full of rich truth about who God is and how He has spoken into the world He's created. And I'm eager to look at this passage with you and to see its implications and applications in our lives because of Jesus Christ. Uh, My purpose for us during this time today is that you would be strengthened in your conviction that God's word, uh, the scriptures, is the supreme source of truth and standard for our lives. This is a needed encouragement because we live in an age that has been irrevocably marked uh, by what we can call relativism. Um, There's a number of other ideologies that connect with that, but relativism is simply a way of seeing and constructing our world, what we understand as true, how we understand morality based upon culture, based upon our historical context, uh, and based upon society at large. And one of the things that marks any kind of um, relativistic thinking is this statement that you may have heard before, there is no fixed truth. Um, That statement has a logical conclusion. If there is no fixed truth, then my truth or your truth becomes authoritative. Um, There's a lot of good in seeking to understand the perspectives of another person. But if that becomes authoritative, if that becomes the measure by which we see our world, it can create significant difficulty in accepting any other voice that would claim authority or would conflict with my worldview. Other voices and especially God's They can't capture the essence of what I have experienced and they therefore cannot be trusted. But what Psalm 19 and what all of scripture presents is a different vision. A vision where the truth that we need, the truth about our world, about ourselves, about God is available with clarity and with authority. So what we're gonna see as we look at Psalm 19 together is that there are two ways that God has revealed truth to our world. There's two revelations that he has given by which we can know him and we can understand what is true. And there's one response. That's what this Psalm will teach us. Two revelations, one response. So look with me at verse one, as we look at Psalm 19. It starts off by saying this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Maybe one of the most famous Verses in all of scripture is something that many of us know. Um, We spent much of this spring crafting our children's programming around Psalm 19, singing songs about this verse, singing songs about this passage. But what this text is saying from the beginning is that when you look around the world, when you look at the heavens, when you look at the skies, when you look at creation, it is declaring the glory of God. It is showing us the majesty and the weightiness of God. It's not just a one-time proclamation though. When it says the heavens declare the glory of God, it means that the heavens are continually proclaiming God's eternal majesty and his glory. That they are showing the world something about who God is like every time we see them. 
The next phrase, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, like all of the Psalms is a parallelism. It expounds upon what the first part of this verse says by giving further detail, further explanation. And it says it in this way, that God's glory pours forth out into the world. It bubbles up like from a brook or a stream. There is a, a type of speech that is happening that, um, that, that day to day pours out speech, that night to night reveals knowledge, that it is not just something um, uh, vague or unknowable, but that it is actual speech. Now that's kind of tough for us to imagine. Uh, maybe you've been in Dallas for some time, you've noticed there's not a lot of topographical diversity, but this is something you might see really clearly when you're driving through West Texas and you see the sky right before sunset and it is exploding in color proclaiming the glory of God. Of course, we see the mountains, we see the world's natural beauty and we see this, but everywhere we look in the heavens and in the world that God has created, what this text is saying is that God is speaking through his creation and that the knowledge of him is revealed night and day. It's revealed all the time. As we continue looking at verse three, we're gonna see that this speech that comes from God through the natural world is heard by everyone everywhere. Look at verse three. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God's speech in creation is wordless. We don't hear it. We don't hear it the same way you're hearing my voice now, but irrespective of its form, God's words are heard. They're heard everywhere that he speaks. God's words spoken through creation are understood plainly by every single person. There is no one who cannot say that they have not heard that God is the creator, that God is full of glory, that God is majestic. This wordless revelation in the natural world is what theologians would call general revelation. General revelation describes the knowledge of God that's available to all people at all times in every part of the world. It's not just any knowledge, but it is a particular knowledge in the natural world about God and about us. We see this in creation and we see it in the human heart. Paul, the apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, talks about general revelation. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, he says this. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This knowledge of God that is spoken through creation, not only is it something that every person hears everywhere, it's something that creates an obligation in those who hear it. This is why Paul quotes later on in the book of Romans, this verse that we just read from Psalm 19:4. their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He was speaking of the accountability of the Jewish people to the knowledge of God, which they clearly possessed, but which they had rejected. General revelation, as we see in Psalm 19, one through four, is a picture of, uh, of who God is in the natural world. Everyone hears it. There are none who do not. 
Verses four, the rest of verse four through verse six further illustrate this truth. Look at uh, the second part of verse four with me. It says, in them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. These verses actually um, are, are, are come in the form of a partial polemic that they are speaking against a common view at the time of the writing of Psalm 19, which is that the sun was to be worshiped instead of the one who created it. This was common in other cultures, but what David is saying in Psalm 19 is that no, God is the creator. The son is his servant. There's two parallel descriptions as well that come with what the son does. First, the son brings warmth and life. Think of a, think of a bride getting ready to um, enter into his wedding ceremony, the kind of joy that he would have conveyed to everyone around him. Think of the warmth of the sun on a cold day when you step out from the shade and into the light, there is warmth and life. But look at the end of verse six, there is nothing hidden from its heat. There's a negative description. The sun can scorch, the sun can burn. The sun will burn me for sure, but the sun can scorch with its heat. John Calvin remarking on the effect of the sun's heat, he said this, he says, with respect to the enlivening heat of the sun by which we feel ourselves to be invigorated, no man desires to avoid it. We love those days. We love the experience of that kind of warmth. But he says that this also points to the sun's violent heat, which scorches men and other living creatures as well as plants and trees. And just to summarize these first six verses of Psalm 19, we can say this, God speaks through the created world. Though wordless, such a revelation is audible to everyone. And for those who cherish it, it comes as warmth from the sun. But for those who reject it, it's scorching heat. No one is exempt. No one can claim excuse from the knowledge of God. So what does this mean for us when we think back to our introduction? There is no fixed truth. The application of these first six verses is this, that apart from Jesus Christ, every person rejects the kindness and warmth of natural revelation. Everyone says, my truth is what's important. There's nothing fixed except what I say. Romans 1.18 echoes this point. Paul, in that same passage, when he's talking about God's revelation of himself in the natural world, he says that there are those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That there are those who rather than acknowledging God as creator, they exchange his glory for another and they worship creation and in, worship creation instead. We have all done this. Every person apart from Christ has fallen prey to the same system of understanding, the same rejection of God, the same denial of his knowledge in the created world. And it shows us that any kind of system of understanding that removes God and his truth is actually an exercise of folly and rebellion. Later on, Paul comments on this kind of posture. And he says in Romans 1.22, that claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
And so when we stand back and we say, there's no fixed truth, I'm just living my truth. This is actually an articulation of the internal suppression that's required in a person's heart in response to the clear evidence of God as both creator and Lord. And it reflects this kind of mindset that says, if I can construct my own system of understanding, I don't need God. If I can live my truth, I can be good without God. And this results, you may have felt this in your life. This results in a kind of internal exhaustion. This kind of perspective leaves us weary. And if you go beneath the surface at all with someone who has fallen prey to this kind of mindset, you're going to find a world of uncertainty and anxiety about whether or not everything's gonna be okay. What started out in most of our minds as an attempt at freedom actually leads to slavery. And we stand exposed before God like someone under the scorching heat of the sun. This is something that non-Christians cannot help but do, but it's something that Christians fall prey to all the time as well. We would affirm the supremacy of God's voice, but the sum total of other voices in our lives, whether social media, cable news, friends, our spouse, experts in different fields, far outweighs God's voice and their influence. We suppress the truth of God in our rejection of his wisdom. And we substitute other voices and other voices and other sources of truth. And they don't ever have the power to match the revelation of his voice in the world he created. And they cannot have the same certainty as his voice and they will leave us wanting and weary. They deny the truth that God is full of glory and he is Lord. And we stand exposed in the same way. What this text will continue to show us though is that where there is an exposure, there is a need that God intends to meet. God's wordless voice in the natural world finds its articulation in the word of scripture. And that leads to the second revelation. First revelation is this, the heavens declare God's glory. The second revelation is that the word reveals God's gospel. Verses seven through nine of this Psalm give us six characteristics of the word of God and they show us six things that it produces. Look with me at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This statement shows us that God's word, because it is perfect, it brings life in Jesus Christ through repentance. You may be thinking, well, David wrote this. He wrote this way back in the day when he would have only had a small section of what we know as scripture today. What does this mean? This was the scripture that David had, but even it was lacking in nothing. We talk about the idea of the sufficiency of the scriptures and in David's context, he still had all that he needed from God to be able to live in a way that's pleasing to him. It's called progressive sufficiency. And in our, uh, in our world today, on the other side of the cross, we see this kind of completed sufficiency that God's word is, is complete, it is total, and there is nothing lacking in its pages to be able to reveal the full knowledge of God that he intends for us to see. Natural revelation exposes a need that is meant to be met through the revelation of scripture. And the result is that it revives the soul. This is actually the same kind of word that connects to another word in the Old Testament for repentance, of turning, 
of helping us to see where we have trusted in something else so that we can turn and trust in God instead, and it revives the soul. Listen to this quote by the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon about this verse. He says this, the doctrine revealed by God, he declares to be perfect. And yet David had but a very small part of the scriptures. And if a fragment and that, the darkest and most historical portion, he's referring to the Old Testament books of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If that, the darkest and most historical portion be perfect, what must the entire volume be? How more than perfect is the book which contains the clearest possible display of divine love and gives us an open vision of redeeming grace. The gospel is a complete scheme or law of gracious salvation presenting to the needy sinner everything that his terrible necessities can possibly demand. There are no redundancies and no omissions in the word of God and in the plan of grace. And hear this, why then do men try to paint this lily and gild this refined gold? The gospel is perfect in all its parts and perfect as a whole. It is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it and felony to take from it. The Bible tells us of a God who has created all things, a God who can be known and who made human beings in his image. The Bible also tells us about the tragic choice that humans made and make again and again to reject the voice of God and to substitute their own and the things that God has created, erecting false idols that we worship to our own peril. But the scriptures also tell us of the love of God for sinners that he demonstrated by sending his own son. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, God's very self-revelation in the world, took our sin and he bore it on his body, receiving the punishment that we deserved. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, but Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, he resurrected to demonstrate that he was more powerful than sin or death and so that we might receive his life by faith. For those who trust in Christ, there is forgiveness for sin and the promise of eternal life. This is the full breath of God's word revealed to us and it is perfect and it will bring life from the dead as it revives soul after soul. But what are some of the implications of this stunning truth as we seek to bring our lives to God's revelation in the word of God? This is, look with me at verse seven again, the second half. He says this, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This means that God's word can be trusted and it brings wisdom from ignorance. Earlier, we said that it was folly and rebellion to construct a system of understanding one's life apart from God. But what God's testimony is, is his system. It is the world according to his word. It is the way things truly are. When we look at the pages of scripture, his testimony is the truest voice we could know because it tells us what actually is and how we are to understand it. And as we grow in seeing the world the way that God does, there is wisdom. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's word contains right instruction and his word leads to true joy. What happens when we suppress the innate knowledge of God in our lives is that we experience guilt 
we experience shame and we experience hopelessness. But to embrace God's words as true, to believe all that it says and to seek to live in light of the commandments of Jesus actually leads to joy. When you are tempted and you fall prey to sin, you are not happy. There may be a fleeting sense of pleasure or justification, but it is not something that leads to joy. But when you are tempted and you resist by the Spirit's power, there is joy. When we suffer, we have the opportunity to turn to God's words as a balm to our heart. Scripture is able to bring joy in the midst of sorrows to a heart in need. Look, look with me at the second half of verse eight. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is pure and it purifies those who follow it. What does this mean? Scripture gives us a type of discernment. It gives us the ability to see clearly. It is possible for someone to possess knowledge, but to lack wisdom. But what scripture does, according to Hebrews 4, verse 12, is that it exposes the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. It shows us the true state of things so that it can come in and rebuild who we are from the inside out through the faith that we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's word shows us the true nature of our motivations, but it also shows us how to believe what's true. Scripture aligns our hearts with the true nature of who God is, of who we are, of the impact of sin, of the hope of Jesus Christ, of the necessity of faith, all so that we might grow in discernment and purity in our own lives. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. What happens when a person comes to the word of God and submits his or her heart to him through it is that it leads a person to worship that overflows into true change. God's word leads to worship that overflows into true change. When you sit and you dwell in what God has said, when you delight in the word of God, it actually strengthens our reverence for God. That's what the fear of the Lord means. It means worship and reverence and awe. And what that then produces is sanctification of being changed, of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we grow more and more from who we were in light of who we are and of who we will be. Look at the second half of verse nine. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. God's word is ultimately going to be vindicated as true and as just. There's times when we come to the scriptures and we don't understand why God says what he says why he does what he does. We look at our own life and we don't understand why things happened the way that they did, why we struggled in such significant ways, why we experienced sufferings in the ways that we did. But what is true from this text is that God's words and his works will prove just. What he does will prove to be what is best, what is wisest and what is good. The justice of the words of God is unimpeachable. These six truths, these six characteristics, these six results, David in verse 10, he takes a step back and he begins to comment on their value. He says, more to be desired than they are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey 
and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. These, these descriptions show us the value of the word of God, but they also show us how God's word is to be our standard. It's to be the well from which we draw truth. It is to be the delight of our hearts and the companion for all of our lives. And I know there are challenges that we have to acknowledge in what this looks like. We have to fight to have this kind of relationship with the word of God. We are not going to drift in that direction. If we are not intentional on the basis of our hope in Christ to hear the words of God in our lives and to put ourselves before them in such a way that we are changed, it's going to happen from some other source that fails to measure up. It's gonna happen when we spend more time with our phones than we do with the scriptures. And I get that, I'm the first of sinners in that. What do I do when I wake up first thing in the morning? What do you do when you wake up first thing in the morning? What is the voice that you turn to when problems strike? What is the wisdom that you seek in, in, in days of difficulty? The reality is, is that whatever source of wisdom that may be, it cannot compare to the scriptures because there are no other words that can actually lead to life because there are no other words that come from God and that contain the gospel itself. And so those two revelations, the heavens revealing God's glory, the word revealing God's gospel, what is that meant to lead us to? What is the response that we are to make and the response is this, we are to walk with humility before the word of truth. Look with me at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? From the foundation that we have in Christ, we can only relate to God rightly in his word through humble hearts that desire to hear God's voice. When David says this, he's saying, I know that there are things that I don't see correctly. I know that there are things that I do that don't measure up and I can't see them clearly. Jeremiah 17, nine echoes a similar statement when it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what David is saying is, God, I understand this. Help me to walk humbly. Help me to hear your voice. When he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults, he knows that we are prone to sins unseen and we require, we need, we must possess the clarifying gaze of the word of God to be able to discern where our heart is and where change is truly needed. That's not the only thing that we need though. In verse 13, he talks about those sins that we can see. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. We have to ask for God's help and his protection against our arrogance and our high-handedness. And if you're listening to this and you're saying, I'm not arrogant, I'm not high-handed, then there's a lot more that we have to learn about our hearts before God. Because the truth is, is that we are all arrogant. We are all selfish. We are all people who rebel against the voice of God. Psalm 14 says, there is none who does good. Paul echoes this in Romans three, and it's the very thing that sets up the foundation to say, but there was one who was good. There was one who came in the flesh, 
who became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. There is one when we put our trust in him who gives us a new heart and a new name and a new ability by the spirit to actually believe the promises of God and to actually follow him with our lives. And if we aren't aware of the proclivities in our heart, both the things we can't see and the things we can. We will never come to the scriptures with any kind of humility. We will never come to the scriptures in such a way that says, I need to hear the voice of God. I need to hear what he says. And if I don't have what he says, then I don't have what I need. And that leads to verse 14, this benedictory dedication. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. We must dedicate ourselves to the truth of God's word and the glory of his name. You must dedicate yourself to the truth of God's word and the glory of his name in your life. We must pursue this. And so we look at Psalm 19 and we see this, that God's truth is what we need. God's truth reorders the chaos of human systems of understanding that seek to suppress the knowledge of God in the world. And it refocuses our gaze on the redeemer that we so desperately need, the hope who is ours, his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see the magnitude and glory that is due your name, the provision of Jesus Christ, the incredible riches that we see in your word, that point us to him. Help us by the spirit to be men and women who delight in the word of God, who cherish your words, who live by them. Help us to see the truth that in keeping them, there is great reward, but that even more so that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Would you glorify yourself and would you help us? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.